We are going to begin a series today leading up to Christmas called the Christmas Revelation. And our goal through this series is to move through some familiar, maybe some less familiar, Christmas passages in order to um, better understand and take hold of the Christmas message and Christmas hope. Whether you've heard the Christmas story a million times or because of the pandemic, maybe you feel like you have more time and space and maybe even a desire to dig into it more intentionally, maybe even for the first time, we're really, really glad that you're here. We think this is the most important story that there is. We all know that this Christmas is going to be pretty different and it's going to be a lot more difficult and disruptive because of the pandemic. But we also believe that if we take time to consider the Christmas story with fresh eyes and open hearts, then the weeks ahead can really hold new gifts for us. Gifts of love and joy and peace and hope. And, and those words can come to mean something deep, not just ideas, but in our bones that can settle in our hearts and lives in new and fresh ways. So the format that we're using for this series is going to be sort of a, a tag team teaching. Rick is joining me and we're going to be taking a passage, looking at it, and then kind of ping-ponging insights back and forth. So we settle on a passage early in the week. We spend time then kind of steeping in the passage, doing our own research, uh, connect a little bit by the end of the week to get a basic framework, but move into this space having prepared individually, but not having rehearsed this. And we hope that kind of the conversational nature of it will be uh, fresh and interesting. It's a little bit nervous. I I'm nervous to do it. I think Rick is too, because normally when you preach, I think both of us have developed the habit of scripting more or less everything. And so this is less scripted than normal, but we hope that in that dialogue and in that banter and the things that uh, come about because of it, It'll just give us all a greater sense of what can happen when you uh, dwell on God's word and then just talk openly and share what you're learning with someone else. So that being said, if you have a Bible handy, we'd really like you to go and grab it and turn to the gospel of John chapter one. If you have a Bible handy, go and grab it because we really want you in this series to be having the scripture in front of you. Now, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. Just go into Google, open up a new tab, and just do a search for John chapter 1 NIV. And the NIV refers to a translation, the New International Version. version. That tends to be the translation that we use as a church. We use it because it's a pretty readable translation, so you stay away from all the thous and thys and, and strange uh, old-school sounding words, and it's meant to be uh, pretty readable to a contemporary audience. So, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, which is John's gospel, or open up a tab and search John chapter 1 Bible NIV. And you'll probably get a list of free sites that you can go to and have John chapter 1 open in front of you. So what's going to happen now is Rick's going to read through the passage, and I'm going to try some tech tr tricks to see if I can actually show the passage uh, as part of the live stream. But if that messes up, just follow along in your own uh, Bibles with Rick. Okay, go ahead, buddy. All right. So this is from John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one that I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So this is a big text of Scripture, but it fits, uh, it can be broken down pretty neatly into three sections. So we're going to move through verses 1 to 5 first talk about the insights that we kind of glean there, what stood out to us, what God was impressing in our own hearts there. Then we'll move to verses 6 to 13, and then finally in 14 to 18, and then finish with some questions related to how did kind of steeping in this passage affect us personally, and what did we feel like God is speaking to our church through this passage. So Rick, I'm going to start with you. These first uh, five verses are obviously really, really dense, but what are what was the first thing that stood out to you in terms of as pastorally wanting to make sure that our attention gets drawn to? Yeah, that's, that's a great way to start is saying that these are really dense verses. There's so much in here uh, that I think we could do a whole sermon series just, just on the first five verses, I think. Yeah, oh, no doubt. Uh, yeah. But just to get the ball rolling, I think the first thing that uh, right out of the gates, anyone familiar with the Bible would hear the opening statement of John and think, Wait a minute, I've, that sounds like another story in the Bible. There's, and there's really only one other book in the Bible that starts with the famous phrase, in the beginning. Mm. And that's the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. Um, let me just read the first few verses of that. Uh, so that's the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from darkness. So 
John's original audience, which would, would have been um, first century Jewish people and also Greeks and Romans, um, they would have picked up on this, especially the first century Jews, on this parallel right away. They would have noticed that John is telling a new creation story. Mm. But there's a unique twist because Genesis says in the beginning God created and John is implying before that the word existed. Mm. So that was kind of the first thing that, that jumped out at me. How about you? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I would dovetail on that and say um, to a, a Jewish audience, that might be the most loaded opening way you could ever start an introduction to Jesus's life. Because what you might assume as modern readers, when you're learning about Jesus, is you start in the beginning, meaning like where he was born. You would begin with his birth story. And actually, John is saying you have to go, you have to re, you have to go far, farther back than that. Because what we learn through these passages is that Jesus is actually the conduit of creation. And what I love here is that by saying in the beginning, John is really emphasizing that the birth of Jesus is actually rooted in a larger story. And it's a cosmic story. And it holds implications for everything. And just like Genesis 1 talks about how God created uh, everyone and everything, we're seeing here a new creation story which by implication is meant to hold ramifications for everyone and everything. What's happening with the birth of this baby is something that is cosmic in scope. And I think we often don't fully appreciate that, whether or not we uh, are familiar with the Christian or the Christmas story or not. What's something else that you picked up on? Yeah, I think just the use of, of, of the word word, right? Um, oh, like in the in beginning, the, in the beginning was, the was the word. So just the use of that. John isn't using um, word in the sense that we think of it just as a unit of strung together letters. Um, in John, word is capitalized. So if you're reading along, you'll notice that it says mm-hmm. in the beginning was the word and that that's capitalized. Um, and he makes three very interesting claims here when he says in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. So number one, this word existed before the beginning of time, eternally. And this word is also distinct from God because it says it was with God. Mm -hmm. But it's clearly very intimately connected to God. And then the next statement says this word is God. So this word is both distinct from God and yet it is also God. And this this is puzzling to us. Um, but it would have also been like a hook to get the attention of the original audience, which, um, as mentioned, was a mix of first century Jewish people and Greeks. And it would be kind of like a really good clickbait for us on the Internet, mm-hmm. right? Because both the Jewish audience and the Greeks, they had a really unique understanding um, of the word word. Um, specifically God's word. For the Jewish audience, God's word was power. Um, power to create, power mm. to heal, power to bring justice. We see this through the Psalms, through Genesis, through the prophets. Um, so it's associated with God's power. And so when God's words are uttered, like stuff happens. Mm. Um, and then for the philosophical Greeks, the word was a universal force of reason and stability and purpose. Um, in other words, they would have understood the word as the the thing that brings order into chaos yeah kind of like a, a, a deep intelligence yeah 
Um, you can certainly look at the world and say, wow, there's a lot of chaos in this world, but there does seem to be an underlying design and intelligence, and, and they used logos, word, as a way to try and capture that primary or first principle. Yeah, yeah, and so John catches both of their attention, both, both ends of the spectrum of his audience with this claim, but he takes it a step further. He says, you know, God's word is not just some objective detached object like the Jewish audience would have understood, and neither is the word some unknowable force in the universe that the Greeks understood. Mm. John writes that the word is actually a person. And um, spoiler alert in verse 14, this word takes on human form. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, that's actually a really helpful way of thinking about it when you talked about clickbait, because mm. uh, we don't read this opening line in that way. It doesn't hook us that way. It doesn't grab our attention, but it absolutely would have to the original audience. And it would have kind of shocked people into attention to say, you know, what now? Like, what's going on? I got to find out more. And you can see how John kind of um, drops these theological bread trails to lead people through. Okay, I got the word. Okay, yeah, the abstract principle. Oh, wait, it's not an abstract principle. Well, it's referring to him in verse four as in him, in this word was life, and that life was the light of men. So you have this progressively unfolding revelation of Jesus that, uh, again, is to speak to Jew and Gentile, every person. Um, we're seeing John say, you have to understand who Jesus is because he's part of the biggest, the most important story. He's part of the story of creation. All things were created mm -hmm. through him. And apart from him, not one thing that was created has been created. Uh, Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. This is a bit of a teaser to Jesus' earthly ministry, that he comes as the light, and as the gospel unfolds, you see all these forces of darkness co uh, coming to bear on Jesus' life, and in a sense, trying to snuff out that light and, and um, extinguish it. And John says here, this light came, and there was nothing that could overcome it. There was nothing that could extinguish it. Yeah, I think those verses, uh, verse 4 and 5, are among my most favorite ones in the Bible. Hmm. Um, and the word here, it's not just filled with life and light, but as some commentators say, the word is the very source of life and light. Yeah, it's weird, right? Because, again, when you think about Jesus, you might make an immediate line to, well, in Jesus was a lot of like wisdom. Um, or a certain, you know, certainly the life of Jesus reveals certain things, but what a claim to say that in Jesus is life itself, that, that if we have Jesus, we are somehow connected to the source of life, and if we are disconnected from Jesus, we are disconnected from something deeply fundamental to all of existence. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and verse, oh, go, go ahead. No. Oh, oh, uh, uh, do you want to go to the next section? I had, I had a couple more thoughts just on that, that theme of light Go there. For it. But, yep. um, you know, as I was kind of thinking about just reading it from my context, uh, we like the language of life and light. It kind of makes us feel warm and fuzzy, right? Uh, but I think John wants to go beyond just good feelings here. Um, and just like very basic questions, like why, why do we need light? When do we actually turn on light? And, well... It implies that it's, it's dark. Things are dark, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the language of Jesus being light here implies that there is, that there is darkness. Mm. Um, 
And N.T. Wright, he's a Bible scholar, that uh, he says that the word challenges darkness before creation, as we read in the Genesis narrative, and then now he challenges the darkness that is found within creation. Oh, that's good, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's excellent. And I, and I think when I think of light, you think of incandescent bulbs or LED lights, but light to a biblical audience is kind of synonymous with fire. That's how you get light. So there's a sense of there is a, there's a power, there's a warmth, and there's a purifying um, dimension to who this word, this Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Okay, verses 6 to 13, we kind of, um, this section starts by talking about John, who isn't the writer of this book, John. The John they're referring to here is John the Baptist, who goes before Jesus kind of as a, a PR person and tries to prepare people for uh, this revelation and for Jesus coming on the scene and for what he's going to do. And and then it talks uh, a little bit in verse 10 to um, 13 around what Jesus accomplished through his ministry. So what were some themes or truths here that really struck you? Yeah, I think, again, just the first thing in this, in this section was, uh, was the role of the witness in verses 6 to 8. Um, just kind of reflecting on what exactly is the work of John the Baptist. Um, he, he describes him as the witness. And it's to point others to the true light. The purpose of the witness is uh, his work is so that through him all might believe. Mm-hmm. Um, a witness is someone who explains what they've seen and experienced. And so here John has seen the light, who is Jesus. He's experienced him. And so his work as a witness is to say, I've seen the light, I've experienced it, and I can show you where to find it too. Hmm. So I just kind of meditated a little bit on, on that word, just witness. What, I, what stuck out to me as I, after doing some research, um, what I found really interesting was the fact that John's gospel has to kind of emphasize in a way that we might not expect that John the Baptist wasn't the light. In verse 9, it says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And that's after he's just talked about John the Baptist being a witness. And the reason for that is John the Baptist holds such a disproportionate impact in first century Judaism that there were tons of people who were really like, well, this guy, this guy has to be the Messiah. There was something about John's um, not just charismatic presence, but his deep fundamental integrity and witness that caused people to say, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the light that is to come and pierce this darkness. And even when this gospel is written, which is a few decades after Jesus died and was resurrected, the, the writer John still has to emphasize that, no, John the Baptist wasn't the light. He was pointing to the light because some scholars believe John still had disciples in Ephesus who said, wow, the impact of John is just so enormous. And that got me thinking to the fact that, you know, um, if you think about the most genuinely and robustly moral, thoughtful, coherent, integrous, fully alive human being, if you think about that person that you've met in your life or that maybe you look up to or a mentor of some kind, um, Jesus said, no one has been born greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus acknowledges that no one was greater than John the Baptist. 
But when John the Baptist points to Jesus, he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And to me, that's something really, really amazing that kind of, at least for me, really pushes me out of the temptation to pull Jesus down into the crowd of other teachers, other prophets, other gurus, because you have this testimony from John saying, even when people saw John the Baptist and were tempted to say, he's the light, he's nothing. He's nothing compared to what was revealed in Jesus. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jeff. And I was thinking even in terms of like, what does that look like today a little bit? And um, I mean, the reality is that we are, as Christians, we're all called to be a witness to the light. Uh, but some of us have roles in which we do influence uh, a larger number of people. And we, um, we have, we teach, right? Or we influence a group of people. And there's always this temptation to to want to get that following for for oneself, mm. and you see this a lot out there, right? Is uh, as pastors and teachers kind of gaining celebrity status, and they might be really really good teachers, but but just that reminder, like, no, they're not they're not actually the light. Their job is to point you to the light. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really important reflection for all Christian leaders. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention, where, where it talks here about um, he came to his own, meaning he, this word, this incarnate word came to his own creation and his own people did not receive him. So again, that's foreshadowing what we're going to see generally the Jewish authorities and the Jewish people do, which is reject Jesus's um, uh, Christ ship, mess- messianic ship. And it says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right, or that word there is power or authority to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Mm. And that stuck out to me because I think it's important for us to recognize that um, who Jesus is and what he has come to do is something that we need to receive. Mm-hmm. It's not just something that we need to quote-unquote believe in. We, we, in our modern context, we tend to think of belief as intellectual assent to an idea like, oh, yeah. I agree with that. Oh, you know, and I hear, I hear people say, well, I believe that there's a God. You know, that's intellectual assent. But to receive Jesus, I mean, that's where the language of have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior kind of comes from. It doesn't just mean, do you abstractly believe that Jesus was the Son of God? Mm-hmm. It means, have you received this logos, this life into your own life and begun to um, develop and build your life from his capital L life? And yeah. I think, uh, and, and, and in verse 13, when it talks about how, you know, the, uh, um, that those who have received Jesus have been born uh, through a spiritual power. It's um, becoming a Christian or taking part in this new creation mission that you see Jesus pointing people to in his gospel isn't something that kind of comes from us. It's not based on our religiosity or our willpower or our ethnicity, which was a temptation for the Jewish audience in the first century to assume that you had to be ethnically Jew in order to fully participate in the things of God. This is something that is available to anyone, regardless of ethnicity or (laughs) the surplus of religiosity or lack thereof or messiness or brokenness. What's required is simply to receive it and to begin to live in response to that love. Yeah, that's 
Those are great reflections. I, I kind of echo with what you said about, you know, what does it actually mean to believe? And I, I kind of wrestled with that same thing about it's more than just um, mental certitude or, or mental assent, right? And, and even later on in the New Testament, in the book of James, uh, he kind of calls Christians on that. He says, yeah. you believe there's one God. Great. But even the demons believe that and they shudder. And in other words, he tells them just having a mental certitude that God exists isn't, isn't enough, right? And so to receive Jesus then, um, you can think literally about an example of light. You know, you imagine yourself lost in the forest at night and you're feeling your way through the dark and your friend says, here, I have a flashlight. Mm. Like you hear that, you can believe that, but it also makes, um, it ought to make you respond, right? Are you going to receive yeah, that flashlight? It, turn it on. Are you going to walk in that beam yeah, of light? Yeah, now? leverage that power. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, section three, verses 14 to 18. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how this section starts. And it's really about honing in on this idea that while our pictures of, of God were limited up to this point, even given his revelation of his law or instruction through Moses, um, we are seeing this Word incarnate, become human, stand in front of us, and it reveals so much about the heart of and character of God. What, what stood out mm-hmm. to you? Yeah, I think um, verse 14, like that's kind of the Christmas message in a nutshell yeah. in the Gospel of John, right? The Word becoming flesh, making His dwelling among us. Um, that's the Christmas story. And there's another translation of the Bible called The Message, and it's a very conversational translation. Mm-hmm. It's an easy-to-understand translation. And I like the way that it translates this verse. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Mm. Um, in other words, you know, God doesn't just detach himself from the world, sitting on some high tower, um, watching when the world is in turmoil. He's, he's a God that moves into the mess, and he moves into the pain and suffering of, of his world, um, taking on real human form, uh, like the, the word that John uses here is sarks, like it's it's flesh and bones. Yeah. Um, and just pointing to the fact that God experienced full humanity. He's not a distant God. He doesn't shy away from a mess. He moves into it. Um, he is God with us. And some of the Gospels call call Jesus by another name, Emmanuel, which, which means God with us. Mm. So... Yeah, that was, uh, that was really what stood out to me about verse 14 there. Yeah, it's really hard to move through that passage without highlighting that, right? Like the word dwelt in the Greek, the root is tent or tabernacle. So there's this allusion for a Jewish audience that the word became flesh or real, like substantial, and made his tabernacle among us. And that pulls you right back to the book of Leviticus where God says, I want to tabernacle amongst my people. But the tension point in Leviticus is how could a God who is holy, holy, and holy pure tabernacle in the midst of sinful, corrupt people? And the book of Leviticus outlines all these things. And yet what we see here in the revelation of uh, God coming uh, uh, um, God coming in Jesus is that there's something um, that in a sense even eclipses uh, God's holiness, and that is His love. That even though in 
from the perspective of his holiness, how could God corrupt himself, contaminate himself by moving into our neighborhood when you look at the state of things? And yet the Christmas uh, message is that for God so loved the world, right? That he came Mm -hmm. and he said, I'm going to get up close and personal. I want you to have a high resolution picture of who I am. Uh, You know, verse 17 says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And that doesn't mean that the law was bad or the instructions of God in the Old Testament. It just means that they were limited, right? Just like you can only know someone so much by reading about what their priorities are or having, you know, reading their memoir. You get to know them really well, but it's still relationally distant. Jesus shows up and reveals full grace and truth. And then it says, no, one's see- no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has revealed him. And I just think about that. The Christmas story is about God saying, people and cultures throughout time and um, different uh, localities have all had a general sense of the God or gods, they, they, there's this intuitive sense that there has to be an intelligence, a power, an animating principle behind all of this. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's benevolent. And what we, see, what we see in the incarnation at Christmas is that God, um, that Jesus reveals who the Father is. And that is such a good picture. And it's so high resolution. So we don't, so as we study who Jesus is, what he taught, look at his life, look what he does, we're actually seeing the clearest picture. Like John is declaring, you can't actually get a more clear picture of God, mm-hmm. which is really good because that should cause us to say, okay, is the God that I encounter in Jesus the reflexive God or higher power that comes to mind when I pray or as I move through my day? And if it isn't, I have to allow the revelation of Jesus to counter and to correct that skewed image of God, wherever that might emerge from in my life. Mm-hmm. Totally got sidetracked here because I'm listening to you <laughs> speak. I'm like, amen, brother. You know, that kind of wraps it up. Um, yeah, kind of backpedaling a little bit to that, that theme of, of grace and truth and the law of Moses. Um, there's a teacher, uh, Tim Mackey, and he, he has a great explanation on this because I was wrestling with that. Like, what does he mean when he kind of contrasts, you know, the law came through Moses, but through Jesus, there's grace and truth. And, um, and he just has a really good kind of summary of, of this. And he says, to understand that, you got to look at the first half of the Bible in the Old Testament. Um, you know, to summarize, God's people had been in slavery in Egypt for a long time, and God saves them and brings them out of slavery. And he sets them up and he says, okay, you know, Israel, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. We're going to set up the terms of our relationship. And that was the law of Moses. Mm. Um, and it was for their good and for their flourishing. But the problem is <laughs> they were really unfaithful relationship partners, right? And that's true for, for us today, too. We don't hold up our end of the bargain, which... Um, in summary version, the covenant says, you know, worship God, don't worship other gods, love God, love your neighbor, don't do harm to others. And people continuously mess that up. Mm. And so justice had to be done because this covenant relationship was broken. So God would have been just by his law to, um, 
to basically wipe them out, to, to terminate the relationship. But he holds the covenant and he says, I'm actually going to fill, fulfill your end of the bargain by sending Jesus to be the perfect human being who upholds that relationship, that covenant. And through grace and truth, you can still be in this relationship. You have a new identity. You can walk in the light and have this new life. Yeah, Christmas is this grand rescue story, mm -hmm. right? And when you understand it as such, it, it does give you fresh eyes to understand. Um, it might take some humility on the front end to say, well, yeah, the wor world's in darkness, so I hope God's working in the world, but can we recognize or even open ourselves up to the possibility that mm -hmm. that darkness lives in our own hearts? And if so, who's going to rescue us? Because I, I think unless you're self-deceived, you're going to come up pretty quickly against your own limits, uh, your own self-salvation projects, and you're going to realize you're going to need rescue from without, from somewhere else. And that's what... Um, Christmas is all about. Mm -hmm. It's this launch of this rescue born out of love, right? Like this lost, uh, this lost love mm -hmm. uh, who's lost her way and the hero comes and says, I want to rescue you. I'm going to um, step into the mess. I'm going to condescend at great cost to myself. I have come to, you know, grab you in the darkness and pull you out. And that exodus rescue of slavery is a prefigure prefigure to that, right? Like mm. you think of yourself as a slave. You're under this foreign power that is oppressive and nothing's going to change. You're stuck and I've come to unstuck you. I've come to deliver you, to uh, renew that covenant and then to teach you what it means to walk in my power, in my grace, in my love. Mm -hmm. Rick, through this passage, you know, I, I invited you and obviously myself did the same thing to kind of read through this passage several times, meditate on it, think through it, not just in preparation to share these thoughts, but to also get to this question, uh, what is the text inviting you into personally? Let's, let's both speak to that. Yeah, you know, for me, as I spent time in this chapter this week and just in reflecting on the challenging year that it has been for everyone to, to varying degrees, for me, this passage was just a reminder that, that God is still in the business of invading dark places with his light. Mm. And he's still Emmanuel, God with us, even through COVID, through, through all the ramifications of what that's caused in our, um, in our society. And I think I just needed that reminder of hope this year that, mm. you know, God entered 2,000 years ago in a time and place when there was a lot of turmoil and that's the same God today that is, that is with us and shines a light in the darkness that we've experienced in 2020. And I think it, the more we sentimentalize Christmas through our imagery and iconography, the more we can forget that, yeah, the birth of Jesus, and we'll discover this more next week, really is a light piercing a very dark time. And so this is a very good time to go back into the Christmas story because it's not a sentimental story in the way that we would think about it. It's not about warm fuzzies. It's about a world that is in chaos, a people who are crying out for hope and help, and God stepping into the darkness and doing something definitive and powerful, which I think everyone around the world is looking for mm -hmm. that kind of message. Yeah. Uh, this was a harder one for me to answer, to be, to be truthful. Uh, I think what I found personally, um, what I felt prompted by was to be praying through that question of 
can the light of Jesus really overcome the darkness? You know, I know what the right answer is as a pastor, but I don't know if it's my stage of life or just 2020 and the pandemic and my mom passing and other attendant forces of darkness that kind of feel like they're swirling into my life. Then I sit down with people and they share things that it's just, it's honestly hard to wrap my head, head around them. Um, and I do the best I can in terms of wrapping my heart around them. But I am exposed and have been exposed this year to just such tremendous darkness. And I just found myself prayerfully going to Jesus and saying, like, I know you're the light, Jesus, but I, I need you to vindicate your word. I, I want to not just believe but know in my bones. And I want to experience this Christmas season the light overcoming the darkness in my life and the people's lives whom I love, who I know have been terribly impacted by the pandemic or um, other tragedies in their lives. So to me, it's just been kind of holding that question kind of half as a lament and half as a, uh, as a petition to God to mm-hmm. say, vindicate your word. Like, I, I read this passage and I was so inspired by it. And I'm like, I don't want this passage to just be something that I read and say, yeah, I totally agree with this. I want to be like, this is real and it's real in my life. And I'm seeing how uh, this pattern of light piercing darkness and life coming from places that look hopeless is being replicated uh, in my life and in the places of darkness in my own heart. Mm-hmm. That's so good. What do you think this passage is inviting our church into? Yeah, you know, I, I had a hard time just coming up with one thing. I think I kind of saw this as like, what's it inviting? Maybe people who aren't in the church uh, or who don't know this light yet. What's the oh, invitation for them? Yeah, but also, but also, what is the invitation for our community? But yeah. I think, I think there's just an invitation here for for anyone who wants to become part of God's family. You know, Jesus does not only offer light and life to some. But the Gospel of John says, you know, that he wants to give anyone the right to uh, to join God's family if they're willing to believe in Jesus and receive that light and life that he offers. Um, but there's also an invitation and maybe a challenge for those of us who, who have already placed our faith in him to not forget to receive him, to not forget to actually cling to that light. Um, you know, I think... This is a reminder that I needed and maybe somebody listening in as well, especially in this year of 2020, which overall has, has been a pretty dark year in the wake of, of the global pandemic, which has not only affected, you know, physical health, but people's livelihood, their businesses, their, their work, their relationships, um, people's mental health, and not to mention the emotional and mental strain of what I just perceive, you know, on social media, the anger, the misinformation, the fighting, it's just become a dark place. Um, and, and I think, you know, we who are Christians, who know the word, who, as John, have experienced the light, um, maybe the invitation for us is to pause and take an honest look at our lives and our patterns and evaluate where we might be forgetting to cling to the light. Um, you know, Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. So for those of us who are, who are Christian, would we look at that example of the witness in this chapter 
and figure out practical ways through social media, through our daily conversations, through, um, through what we're throwing out there uh, to be signposts of hope and light that point others towards that true light. Yeah, that's really well said. That's excellent. Um, that is really you know, kissing cousin to what I had written down. I, I won't expound on it too much, but that would be my heart for our church is to recognize that um, right now, our community is in a dark place and we have a really important obligation and opportunity to be light in dark places. But we can't be a light unless the life of Jesus is actively at work in us, right? We can't leapfrog over that first dimension of receiving the light, not just at conversion, but daily as I uh, seek to pick up my cross and follow Jesus and set him as my agenda, glorifying God, serving my neighbor. If I don't receive his life, then I actually can't be the light that others in my life need. And, um, you know, to that end, I would say to remember that if you find yourself in a place of darkness, this passage is for you and this promise is for you because it, sh- it reveals that Christmas is for you, especially those who live in a place of darkness. Jesus has come to bring light to places of darkness. He hasn't come as a light to rescue and redeem other people who are lights and doing great and have it all together and whose lives aren't chaotic and messy and darkened by their own failures and mistakes and hang-ups. Jesus comes to rescue and redeem from places of darkness. And so let this passage, maybe take some time today, this week, to read verses 1 to 18 several times slowly and maybe be bold enough to say, God, if there is a God, if you're real, if this is real, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you, if you are a light, I'm in a dark place and I'm asking for your help. Give me eyes to see you at work in my life. I want to receive this life. I want to receive this light. Would you mind closing in prayer for us, Rick? Sure. And then I'll send us off with a benediction. Yeah. Dear God, we thank you for your word revealed in Jesus. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that, that your word promises that you are a light which the darkness cannot overcome, and that stands true today. And so I just pray, God, would you help us as a church to be children of the light, to be discerning in how we are clinging to the light and to walk in your ways, to walk in your truth, to spread as these Advent candles you know, represent hope and peace um, and this light that points to you. God, we thank you for your work in creation. We thank you for your saving work through Jesus and we thank you for the hope we have of you returning and making all things new again. Um, God, and we also pray for those who may be hearing the gospel message for the first time, that you would soften their hearts, that they would have ears to hear, um, and the courage to reach out to a friend um, to maybe dig, dig into this a little deeper. God, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I know it's important to Rick, and it's important to myself, that if there is anything in this message that has uh, piqued your interest, that has left an impression, 
please reach out to us. Uh, often when people do, they foreground it with, I know you're really busy, but, um, but people are our priority. And so if there's something that you want to follow up with from this message, please don't hesitate to reach out over email, uh, text, phone, uh, whatever uh, vehicle uh, works for you. So let me send you off with a benediction into this new week to receive the light and then to be a light in dark places. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may the weeks leading up to Christmas hold new revelations of who Jesus is. And may those revelations cause you to rethink not just the world's story, but also your own story. And as the story of Christmas unfolds, may you discover the grace and truth found in Jesus and enter into eternal comfort and joy. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless. We love you guys. Take care.